Hi, it's Zoe Routh, and welcome to the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast. I'm thrilled you're here. I'm so grateful to have a listener like you. Thanks so much. Uh, One of the things that's new, new and brand new exciting on the podcast is our Facebook page. We are going to be posting all links to every episode on the podcast Facebook page, and you can ask questions of the interviewers. That would be me. I mean, the interviewee. You can ask them questions, share your insights, share resources, and basically go to town on your favorite subjects. Speaking of favorite subjects, our subject for today is change. Yeah, it's a, it's a big conversation. It's a big agenda for many different organizations leading massive digital transformations or even smaller changes. And one of the conversations I have often with leaders is, how do I get more buy-in? It seems like this constant process that you know we've got a great new initiative and people just dragging their feet to it. So in today's discussion, I am joined by Julia Steele, who is a digital transformation expert. She is the author of Buy-In, How to Lead Change, Build Commitment, and Inspire People. She's a graduate of Stanford University and lives in Melbourne with her husband, stepdaughter, and two cats. I forgot to ask her what her cat's names were. So she worked at Telstra and led a massive digital transformation there over about two years. So she's been highly immersed in a very difficult change transition. And I think some of the experience led her to be obsessed about how we can do change better. In fact, she believes it's not about change, it's about being better. And so in this conversation, we debunk a few myths about change and get a few tips on the table about how you can generate uh, buy-in for change and how you can create collective influence. Oh, just one other short thing before we get started. We had lots of technology challenges on this call. And a couple of times, the conversation went a bit warbly. It's not so bad that it's going to throw the whole conversation off, just to give you a little warning before we get started. Okay, let's get into it. Wow, so excited to have you on the call today. Welcome and good morning, Julia. Good morning, Sarah. How are you? <laughs> Pretty good. Just doing some last minute adjustments before we kick started with technology and all sorts of things. And I love that we're, we started the call with technology difficulties because a big part of your experience is in digital transformation and managing change. And I've just had to do adjustments on the fly. So I'm thrilled to be talking to you today about change, about leading change, and about building buy-in. And my first question to you as an expert in this space is actually about leadership. How do you define leadership? And when did you first realize you had the skills and abilities for it? Oh, I mean, so it's such a big question. I think it's sort of the number one leadership question out there, really. What is it? Um, I think um, leadership to me is about our ability to inspire others to a place that they haven't been before. If I look at all of the technology and change and disruption that people are seeing and talking about at the moment, I think there are people in the leadership community that are well and truly standing up and leading others. And I think that there are plenty of people out there that are wondering, how do I do that too? I think um, for me, when I look back through my sort of 20 odd year career in technology, I think there's a couple of points where I, I really felt like I was leading others. And probably the most recent one was um, when I was leading the digital transformation at Telstra. And um, people were really looking to me for for guidance and support and inspiration into 
this new journey of digital that Telstra was on at the time. I can imagine, like uh, Telstra has such a bad rap out there in the public discourse and it's such a massive organization and leading a digital transformation across such a vast enterprise would have been, oh, I, I would have think, fraught with many challenges. And thinking back to that time, so you, you were involved in that program for about a year and a half or is it a bit longer? Yes, uh, yeah, probably closer to two, but um, yeah, it, it felt like five sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, why is that? So what was the hardest part about that whole experience about leading that digital transformation? It's not just that digital transformation. Like I talk with a lot of my clients now as a coach, and a trainer that, um, you know, leading others isn't sometimes a daily activity. Like we, we, there's a very task aspect to it. But when you're talking about change and particularly big change, it's not a, a daily task. It's weeks and months of continual buy-in and motivating and inspiring and influencing. Um, and I think that's what, um, that's what makes it hard. There's a level of resilience that we need as leaders to get up every day and to continue to fight the good fight and to inspire and influence people in a, in that new journey, especially if they're facing into you know resistance to it as well. Yeah, so I think you've, you've picked up on some of the challenges I hear with lots of different leaders around leading change and getting that buy-in and maintaining it seems to be one of the biggest obstacles. So I was talking to a couple of different leaders who are instigating big changes in their organizations and they just seemed a little bit worn out <laughs> by like, yes. and they think they're doing the right, they, they're kind of like befuddled with it because they think I'm doing all the right things. I'm selling the why out the wazoo. Like this is why it's important. This is what we're doing. And they get a little bit worn down. So you talk about the continual motivation and continual need to influence, continual need to do the buy-in. Have you got a secret strategy around how to make that easier yeah I kind of um break it down into three levels I was actually speaking at a CIO conference yesterday and most of the leaders in the room were doing exactly what you just described right big transformation multi-year programs of work and I think the secret sort of recipe for me is we always think that it's just down to us as leaders like it, we're the top of the tree in in old command and control sort of language but actually, it's about how do you enable everyone to do it for you? And um, so I talk about influence and buy-in in the context of we have influence as a leader. Our teams have influence as a group. And our ideas, so what we're actually trying to change, has influence as well. And when I look at um, leaders, some leaders, I think, try and take it all on. And then they forget about how do they create this collective influence with their teams so that they're, they're leading, leading change together. And I think if you come from a command and control world where we're sort of worried about whether this change is going to work or not and we're trying to control it, I think it actually makes it harder because you can't control the uncertainty, if that makes sense. Like the you can't see the uncertainty, so you can't control it. So almost like you need to embrace the change and help other people embrace the change and that's what starts to create the buy-in and to me buy-in's like the fuel that goes in a car um, you can have a great engine but if you're if you're only pumping a little bit of fuel or inspiration motivation into it you're not going to go very far and uh, yeah I see a lot of leaders sort of challenged by that they try and do it all themselves okay so the fuel of motivation and buy-in what are your ingredients for that 
Um, so I think um, I always talk about um, if you've seen like Shark Tank or Dragon's Den, that sort of show where people pitch for money. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have someone with a great idea, but people don't trust and they don't get the money. And you can have actually your, your ideas, you know, not worth the paper it's written on, but I really like you. So I'll give you some, I'll give you some cash. So I, I talk about buying and the, the ingredients of the fuel in three ways. So does it have credibility? Do people connect to it? And if you've got those two things, that's when people start to commit. So credibility is, do they trust you? Do they trust the reason why we're changing? Do we trust that we're going to get there? Do they trust that they're being listened to, um, that they're being involved? That's the sort of credible left brain side of change. And then the connection side is, do I actually believe and buy into the reason why we're changing? And do I believe the story? Am I bought into the the journey um, I can see the better future it's the emotive side side of the change and I think um, to your point earlier when you're sort of a lot of people can talk about the why but if you're not credible as a leader then it doesn't matter whether people believe the, the why or not they they don't buy into you does that make sense yeah and I've heard that uh, that expression before and the leader who quoted that eludes me he said people buy into the leader before they buy into the vision John C Maxwell that's who said yes. it yeah, John C. Maxwell. Yeah, that, yes. and so this idea of of trusting the leader and the credibility piece, I just want to drill down a little bit into this. And you said this is the left brain part of of buy in. So explain to me a little bit about the credibility piece. So if I'm if I'm a leader and I'm trying to build credibility, which results in trust in my team, what should I do? What should I demonstrate? So I'll, I'll share a quick story. Is that a leader that I coached last year, he'd gone into the business, new to the business, didn't have a reputation in the organisation, but came in with some pretty clear ideas about what he wanted to do, what he thought he needed to change. And he didn't spend any time actually getting to know the business, sitting down with people, talking about the problems. He wasn't very visible on to the, the teams on the ground. Um, it sort of came in he didn't intend it this way, but he came in as, as if he was mandating this change and he didn't have the credibility with the people to back it up. He hadn't been in the business for years. He didn't have the sort of long-standing relationships um, that he could lean on or that people could have open and honest conversations with him. And he was wondering why the conversation we had was, why is this not working? Why does this feel a lot harder than it should? And I was like, because you haven't got that sort of basement foundation of of trust. And it was only when he started to really engage with his peers, spend some time um, with the the staff on the ground, understanding what their problems really were, that things started to connect and he got that commitment because people could see that it wasn't a mandate. He was actually well-intentioned. He'd just gone about it the wrong way initially. And um, because you don't change things on your own you change things together yeah so uh, I'm curious then so this credibility piece you're, you're actually talking about connection so in terms of understanding people and uh, listening and so on that seems like a right brain people-based activity is there tell me about the left brain aspect of that you talked about track records sort of demonstrated abilities there are some other aspects of credibility that are more logic based as opposed to emotional based so um same leader the logic based things like numbers case studies this particular leader could see a problem with their 
ordering system and that if things didn't change, they wouldn't get the customer experience that they were looking for. So he actually had some really strong metrics on everyone was working really hard, but for no real no real reason because things weren't getting getting better. And so it was he was introducing some digital changes. Um, and it was only by sort of painting the the picture of this is how many orders we get, this is how long it takes to do, this is what our even when we do all of this, our customers are still telling us this. You know, it was a very logical, hard to argue with facts about where where the organization was. And when he sat down with people in the team, they were sort of saying, yeah, well, I've got to put an order into, you know, four different systems and they don't talk to each other. And so he really sort of started to, to get to know the problems of the guys on the ground. And there is a fine line between hearts and minds, but people need to see the, the numbers as well as the story. Well, I think it goes hand in glove by the sounds of it, you know, so by sort of picking apart what are the problems in the systems and listening to that, you're you're both getting understand a diagnostic of the facts, figures, outcomes, inputs and outputs, and demonstrating trustworthiness by willingness to listen and understand. So that yeah. Yes, absolutely. Okay, cool. I want to come back to something really important you said before, which I think is worth unpacking, and that's this idea of collective influence. And you talked earlier about that, you know, leaders don't lead change on their own. Uh, otherwise, it's a command and control situation, which doesn't work in contemporary workplaces. This idea of empowering a group or a team to exert influence and exert leading change or influence. Tell me about that. What does that mean and what does that look like? There's a great book called um, Multipliers by Liz Wiseman. And um, she talks a lot about in- empowering people. And multipliers is just the perfect word for it. If you're trying to lead something by a factor of one it's hard work but if you've got factor of two three four ten a hundred you know people that are championing what you're trying to do so championing you as a leader and what you're trying to change of course it's going to feel easier or it's going to move quicker like so that's the collective influence that I'm talking about it's um the conversation at the water cooler where you've got someone that's resistant to change just happens to bump into someone that's fully on board and by the time they've finished having having a drink at the fountain both of them are leaving as supporters not that you're in charge of convincing every single person I love that I think it might have been Seth Godin talked about this you know who are the sneezers in a group you know the people who are contagious who are like who are going to be so excited about this that they're going to sneeze all over people it's maybe not the best analogy in the age of coronavirus (laughs) but (laughs) <laughs> oh, that sort of comes to mind. It's like, ew. Um, so the water coolers, information, collective influencers, sneezers, infectors. Yes. What do, you, what do you need to equip them with? Do they need specific skills or do they need a list of tasks? How do you set them up? I think we kind of imply that we want people to do things quite a lot and we never get to the really the specific conversations. And I think if I was going to say anything is, is, is have that conversation and say, this is, this is what we're trying to do. And this is what is important. And it's actually reinforcing the trust that we spoke about earlier. So if, if we were working on a change together and I just assumed that when we weren't talking like this, that you were off promoting things for me, but you didn't, you didn't know that. Right. (laughs) Um, Things, you know, it's, it's a bit wishy-washy. So if I said, Zoe, you're one of my key leaders. 
you know, I can't do this on my own. I need, I'm going to need your help. This is what I need you to do. Do you need anything from me? I want to feel like you're bought in and supportive of this. That conversation, I think, is often implied but never spoken. And um, so I think that's the first very, very simple thing. Be really clear on what you need from people. I think the, the second thing is more and more leaders that are leading change, it's still not something that everyone knows how to, to naturally do. And so to assume that they can go and have these inspirational conversations when they've never had them before, um, to assume that they've got the resilience and the courage to have the tough conversations, I think is the second mistake that people make. And so I think when you're looking at your team and your particularly your your leaders um, and your managers is how do you help them help you? Is that whole Jerry Maguire? Um, you know, show me the money. Me show, it. show me the money. Help me help you. Um, <laughs> and um, the problem with that is there's some vulnerability in that conversation. The leader doesn't necessarily want to ask the managers and the managers aren't necessarily going to say, hey, I don't, just don't know how to have that conversation. But if you can get through that, then that's when people start to, to commit together and that's where that collective influence that I spoke about earlier comes from. Okay, so let's go back to the scenario. You're the leader. You've said, Zoe, I can't do this alone. I need you. You're one of the leaders. I need you to help spread the word. I want you to have inspiring conversations and deal with tough conversations. And I might go, mm, good. Where do I start? So where do I start? Yeah. So how do I have inspiring conversations? And what are your tips for the tough conversations? I think inspiring conversations is what does the future look like? It comes back to the why that you mentioned before. So why are we where we are now? And what does the future look like? You've got to paint a I think a lot of people paint a picture of change where you actually want to paint a picture that's better. Because if you think most people, it's that old adage, who wants change me? Who wants to change? No one puts their hand up. I think you have to paint a picture that's better. I think that's the inspiring part. So getting your key leaders, um, influencers in the business on the same page about what that future looks like and helping them articulate that in a consistent way. And I'm not talking word for word consistent, but the why is consistent and then helping people connect with a story. So my story as a leader and why I think the change needs to happen may be different to your story, right? It's not that everyone needs to share my story. You will have an authentic story that backs up the reason for change as well. So um, I think that's the second, that's the second part of it. The tough conversations is really about putting yourselves in other people's shoes. So what are the tough questions that are going to going to get asked and there's a lot there's a lot of tough questions when it comes to change right people want to know about their jobs they're going to they want to know what it means about where they work who they work with what their job titles are the systems that they use the processes they use like there's a long list of things that people might have a reaction to when it comes to change and I think preparing the answers or at least having a or even if you don't know the answers saying I don't know the answer but let me come back to you and, and being upfront about the fact that we don't have all the answers, I think, is also is also a good idea too. And there's some good courage and vulnerability in in that part of the conversation too. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. So rather than going, just ignoring the questions, saying that I don't know and I will do my best to find out helps plug the gap of assumptions, which can run rife. So I, I like this, and I'm curious about 
this idea of connecting with a story. And I'm thinking back to when you were at, at Telstra running a digital transformation. What story did you paint for your selling of the change during that process? Um, so there were, there were lots of stories because different parts of the business needed different stories because we were sort of looking at end-to-end transformation. But one of the stories that really stuck in my mind was as part of the process when it came to ordering, it was just taking too long for customers' orders to be processed. So I actually went and found some customers that had had particularly bad experiences and got them to share their stories. So that had another level of credibility on top of even my story is here's some real customers with some real stories about what it's like to run a business and try and order something from from Telstra. And as soon as those sort of stories came through, everyone was like, okay, yeah, we can't hide from that story. No one can say that that story is not true. It's a real, it's a real customer story. Oh yeah. So a little bit of a, a painful story. Yeah. Yeah. And I think painful story, but an opportunity and so that was the the sort of customer side of the story. The the leadership story I shared was I actually went to spend a bit of time with the with the team involved, and they they stepped me through, you know, what they have to to do every day, and I compared it to a story of a new parent or a new step parent, and just trying to run a house is a bit like the process they were trying to run. Right, we've got lots of things that aren't connected to each other. The left hand and the right hand aren't talking. You're moving information from one system to another system. It kind of feels like running a household, right? It's not as efficient as it as it could be. And um, so that was the the leader story um, that I shared. And it, it felt disjointed and painful. And I felt frustrated that, you know, I can't seem to get out of the house by 8.30 every morning consistently. <laughs> <laughs> and I just want it to be you know, streamlined and painless. And I know we both know Gabrielle Dolan, but I've, I've lent on a lot of um, her thought leadership over the years around you don't have to share a work story. It can actually be a personal story that you can use as a sort of metaphor to drive the change or to paint the picture of change that you're looking for. Mm. Yeah, I love that. So you, you can have a bit of a pain and a bit of a promise in your story. So the pain of I can't get out the door by 8.30 every day because things are so crazy. What I want instead is to have it all systemized and smooth and consistent and so that I can sail at the door, grab my coffee and arrive at work feeling refreshed and ready to act. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I think there's lots of stories that we can use that will get the message through without having to tell the story, the business story of the change. And uh, a a lot of change, you know, stories that I see that don't work are, you know, we had a bad year last year in terms of financial results so we've got to save some cash and by the way x number of people are going to lose their jobs but we're going to try, you know that's the sort of formulaic business no, no one's going to attach to that that's the confronting change it's hard to buy into that one <laughs> that's for yeah, sure like yeah thanks thanks for coming <laughs> yeah nice yeah so i'm curious like um it seems like a perilous enterprise wanting to do a or undertaking a massive change or even smaller changes tell me about a time when you were leading change when what you were trying just failed like it just fell flat and didn't resonate what happened um it's a it's a good question because it's hard to know what's going to work and what doesn't and i think if if for your listeners if there's one thing to take away 
with this is not everything is going to work and you need to try something listen to how people react see if it's positive or negative and then ask yourself why and then there's this course correction with change that needs to happen it's not a set of change plan and then leave it alone you need to be listening to your organization but if I think about one that didn't really work there was this is going back a, a little while now it's probably in my in my mid-20s and I was I'd come out of the technology space as a project manager at the time and I was given a project to deliver which I thought was a technology technology project and the closer and closer we got to to implementing it the scale of the change from a people and process point of view became evident and we just left it too late to solve it so we did shore up the change management side of side of things and the business still wanted to go live and I spoke to them about the risks and and we did but it was the post-implementation part um, and this is before the time of agile the post-implementation part of of it was painful there was a lot of negative feedback from the organization and um, that impacted you know technology adoption perception of the project perception of me um, a couple of my leaders and it's because we just left the change conversation too late because we thought it was about the tech so how did you recover from that a lot of long hours (laughs) (laughs) um i think it was a bit of an eye-opener for a few people in in the organization it's certainly the first time and i'm talking sort of late 90s early 2000s in terms of time frames i think it was the first time that the organization and, and myself had really sort of identified like had had realized that it's not just about technology you've got to look at people process mm. and technology when it comes to managing change the recovery was you know actually being vulnerable and just saying you know yeah we actually we we stuffed this up and we're sorry and we're hearing what you're saying and this is what we're going to do about it and actually we we want to keep talking to you and so actually had we had to go way beyond probably what the original change plan would have been but the outcome was eventually positive but we had to sort of yeah fall on our sword a little bit that we had stuffed it up mm. and that's humbling isn't it, it can be a painful process I, I think um, it's definitely one of the stories of why I'm passionate about change and influencing change now. It's sort of that was a that was a lifelong lesson. I think that that project. <laughs> yeah, how not to fall, how to avoid the need to fall on your sword. <laughs> on your sword, yes, yes, exactly. So you, you sort of alluded to it a little bit in in that story. I mean, you've discovered the hard way that change is not about selling a great system. It's it's all about the people stuff. What was the most surprising thing? you've learned about people uh, through your experiences? I think there's a real misnomer with change. And I've I've worked with a couple of clients recently where they're just like, people just go straight to assuming that people are going to resist it. The problem with thinking that people are going to resist change is is it it almost feels defensive. Like you've got to convince them or control them or control them into this new place. And I'd love to see more organisations just go, it's not about change, this is about being better. And there will be people in your business that want to be better and you find those find those people and put the effort into people that want to lead you there rather than a lot of people putting enormous effort into 
people that are resisting change. You know, some people will never, does that make sense? Like we put a lot of effort into change management, into managing the resistors or um, what I call the saboteurs. We don't put a lot of effort into love and care into the what I call the superchargers. So the people that just naturally get where you want to go, that are going to be your advocates, that are going to be the future leaders in your business, that you don't have to convince about the change. I think we should nurture, you know, those more and celebrate those more because um, the more that people see, we're almost creating a culture that being a change resistor is a good thing. And if I'm if I resist the change, I'll get lots of attention. Whereas the quiet people that are just busy getting on with it never get any any of the credit. Mm. <laughs> and I think we should be embracing those because, you know, let's face it, the world's going to need millions of those future-facing leaders. I love that, you know, and I think you're right. Like the squeaky wheel gets the oil is a chronic problem, not just in change, but in lots of different situations. And if we invested more in the people doing great things and not going, look at me and pay attention to me, then we could do a little bit of a culture shift around this. And I love your, you know, it's not about change. It's about being better. I think it's a wonderful reframe of, of the change conversation. It is. It, it's, yeah. And I think it, it was what I love about saying you want to be better is the reality is, is that change is continuous. And I see um, a lot of, organizations setting up big programs and projects as if one day they're going to get to the last day and we go right we're done we're changed <laughs> yeah magic one magic one we've changed like we've got I, I as soon as you finish that project there will be another project where we say okay we're, now we're going to change again and I think there's a the real danger of of lots of projects and lots of change is people get fatigued because they go oh, here's another one and here's another one and here's another one Whereas if you just say, no, we're just on a journey to being better and we're all going to change and it doesn't matter what project it is, it's not got an end date. It's just, this is what we do, continually changing, continually getting better. Not that we're just going to run this one project and it's going to solve world peace for us. I think that there's a tension that needs to be managed with that as well. Is if like, there's no end destination. You can deny people that sense of achievement, that sense of dopamine and I think in doing that, and I'm sure this is part of your process, is that you celebrate the milestones along the way. It's like, yeah, we're going to change and continue to be better. And at the same time, this is great what we're, where we're up to now. No, I think the, the stepping stones are important. But I think um, I, had, I had worked with a, a large organization last year who was just starting a transformation. And I said, okay, what do you think the perception is going to be? Tell me about what you've done in the past, what's worked, what hasn't worked in the organization one of the leaders in the organization said, you know what, this is the fourth or fifth transformation that we've done in 15 years. People are tired of hearing transformation. They're tired of the message that this is going to make things a whole lot better and then that never eventuates. So I think painting a picture of a of a journey but saying, yeah, okay, here's the steps is important. But pitching projects as something that's going to solve everything and that we're going to, like I said earlier, you know, celebrate that we've, we're now radically different on a particular day in a couple of years is is also unrealistic, I think. Cool. Well, I've got two, well, I've got one question, which is double-barreled. <laughs> so the first, first part of it is, what are your favorite books on change and transformation? And that's question number one. Question number two is, what's the book that's rocking your world right now? Ooh. 
so there's some there's some change classics right John Cotter's written a, a lot of them um, I think if you're into the steps of change they're useful what I would encourage people to do in reading them is they they are you know step one step two step three step four and it's not necessarily that linear but the concepts that he talks about are brilliant there's a lot of culture books that the the Netflix um, book by Patty McCord is not about change it's actually about culture I think there's a, a, a that's a whole nother podcast I think for you and I to, yeah, right. to, it, to have it's a, it's a book about Netflix it's by Patty McCord and oh, Patty McCord and it's about the journey of Netflix and their and their culture and I think the book that's rocking my world at the moment is I've just well I've got a couple on the go and I read this book a long time ago because it's a, it's a leadership classic, but I'm actually reading for it right now, How to Win Friends and Influence People by um, Dale Carnegie. And I read it like, yeah, early in my leadership career, but I, I dusted it off and, and I'm reading it and I'm going, considering it was written in 1936, it's amazing how many of his, like it's completely stood the test of time. And then I'm also reading, because I'm a bit of a basketball fan, the um, 11 Rings by the old Chicago Bulls coach, Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson. Okay, cool. I'll make sure those are all in the show notes, which will be at zoerouth.com slash Julia Steele with an E. Is that right? Uh, no E. No E. Yeah, still like the medal. <laughs> A lot of people want to put an E on my, end, on my name, but um, not so much. Okay, well... That's good because I know you're launching a podcast yourself, which is called Nerves of Steel, which I love. The title. Yes, I'm very <laughs> excited about this. And when is your podcast coming out? Uh, second quarter of uh, this year for people in Australia, so May to June. May, June. May, June. Fantastic. And where can people find out more about you, Julia? Uh, you can find me at juliasteel, without an E, dot com. <laughs> um, I'm also on uh, LinkedIn and all the usual social media channels. And uh, for people that don't want to wait for my podcast, you can also subscribe to my newsletter, which is also called Nurse of Steel 2. <laughs> Fantastic. Juliet, that was awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your insight and wisdom and reframing what change can be for all of us. Love talking to you, Zoe. Well, Julie is amazing. And there's a couple of really fascinating things that came out of that conversation that are sticking with me. I love her quote, it's not about change, it's about being better. And I love that as a change leadership philosophy. I think that's beautiful. The other thing that's sort of been scintillating for me is Julia's notion around influence is about being credible and having connection. It's interesting because I'm studying a little bit of people stuff from Vanessa Edwards, and she defines charisma as the ability to have warmth and uh, competence. And it's basically the parallel thing to credibility and connection. So essentially, we need to build our sense of competence and our sense of warmth, which Julia calls credibility and connection. And that's how you get secret juiciness to charisma and influence. Okay, love to hear what you got out of it. Shoot on over to the Facebook page. We're going to have some links in the show notes where you can do that. In the meantime, live well, lead well.